the Critical Care PRN is dedicated to fostering the role of critical care pharmacists as essential members of the multidisciplinary patient care team. The Critical Care PRN's goal is to optimize drug therapy outcomes by promoting excellence and innovation in clinical pharmacy practice, research, and education. For more information, including how to become a member, go to critprn.accp.com. Again, that website is critprn.accp.com. Welcome to Pharmacy to Dose, the critical care podcast, a partner of the ACCP Critical Care PRN and a member of the Pharmacy Podcast Network. And I'm your host, Nick Peters. And wherever you are and however you are listening, thank you. And welcome back for part two of Blood Pressure Control in Neurologic Emergencies with special guest Andy Webb. And if you haven't had a chance to listen to part one yet, um, you absolutely need to do just that. Uh, we deep dive into specific blood pressure control goals for patients with acute ischemic stroke and spontaneous intracerebral hemorrhage, go over some of the landmark articles, review recent evidence, kind of talk about where we are now. Um, and in this episode, right, part two of this series, we're focusing on the medications used to achieve blood pressure control. So just in case you've forgotten who our special guest is, uh, Andy Webb, he's a neurocritical care clinical pharmacist at Massachusetts General Hospital and creator of NeuroWise, a website where he shares deep dives and thoughts on pharmacotherapy in neurocritical care. Uh, find him on Twitter at AJWFarm and NeuroWiseRx.com. What a great series that we have. Let's kick off part two of blood pressure control in neurologic emergencies right now. We have now talked all this much about these neurologic emergencies, and two pharmacists haven't even mentioned the antihypertensives. Well, that's because we're saving the best for last, y'all. No one likes their right. dessert first. No one likes to do the going down on the hike first and then going up, right? So um, as we get into our antihypertensive agents, we have to start with... Would you say that we have any high quality data, high quality meaning kind of randomized data actually comparing our antihypertensive agents? And I'm not even saying comparing in neurologic emergencies, just comparing in general. Yeah, so this is one of the ones where I can kind of confidently say no. <laughs> like this is one of the, it's probably the most frustrating thing in neurocritical care and really, you know, hypertension control in the ICU overall is there's really not anything great that is looking at any one particular agent, right? So there's like the CLUE trial, which is like a pretty small RCT in the ED that randomized ED patients that needed IV antihypertensive, which I find kind of funny because they don't really even talk about why patients needed the antihypertensive. At all. That randomized them to either labetalol or nicardipine. Uh, and like surprise, surprise, like nicardipine tended to achieve blood pressure targets a little bit faster, uh, but did require more titration than labetalol. And that's like, at least to my knowledge, at least in this relative area of patient care, probably the only major RCT that's out there, there are at least a couple of prospective observational studies. Uh, like there was one that, you know, evaluated 54 patients in like a pseudo-randomized way, or they essentially said one week we're going to use labetalol, one week we're going to use nicardipine. Uh, and essentially, again, nicardipine tended to lead to more time in the systolic goal. Uh, and then there was another larger registry study that came out a year or two ago uh, that basically looked at about a thousand, uh, like, you know, 1200 patients who received either IV labetalol, IV hydral, or IV nicardipine. 
and essentially looked specifically at the rate of BP control um, as well as kind of hematoma expansion. And you know, the distribution of the agents, most patients got nicardipine in this particular study, about 35% got levetilon, six got hydral as their first agent. And essentially, again, nicardipine tended to achieve goals a little bit faster. But this time, interestingly, specifically, there was a larger reduction in diastolic blood pressure, not necessarily systolic blood pressure, which is probably a reflection of just we're titrating the agents to the systolic, not the diastolic. But there wasn't any major differences in the rates of hematoma expansion, MRS, but Nicardipine patients tended to have longer lengths of stay, probably because those patients had to get admitted to the ICU. And so basically the bottom line is there's really nothing out there that's like really high quality that will allow us to choose one agent over the other. I mean, for the, the like two of the randomized trials you looked at, it's less than 300 patients total, right? And these yeah. trials we're looking at, like the Interact trials, the attach, these are thousands and thousands and thousands of patients. So the idea that we don't even have, like we have almost none in terms of the agents that we use. So yeah. as we as we talk about the individual agents, and you, I've, I've heard both of these as you've talked through some of your answers about variability in blood pressure and kind of our, our absolute values, kind of on either end of that U, either high or low. So either based on anecdotally or the literature, right, what do we think is actually most important in these patients? Yeah. And so from the literature perspective, what's been demonstrated is that the variability is probably what has the larger effect on the outcome. So again, from some of those patient level analyses, it's larger variability has a much stronger association with how someone's functional outcome is going to look like at three months than the actual number that's achieved overall. But like we kind of talked about, that's fantastic from a research perspective and from a quality improvement perspective, and also from kind of how we think about what agents we might select. But it's just so difficult to target variability at the bedside. Um, and so I think that essentially what that means is that operationally, a systolic blood pressure of 140 for our ICH patients is probably what we should be targeting across the board. And the agents that we choose, how we dose them, how we monitor them, how we titrate them, should be optimized to limit how much variability patients have. So we shouldn't be giving, you know, pushes a hydral every six hours and just have somebody's blood pressure go up and down and up and down and up and down. Like we know that is probably bad, uh, but we can still probably use whatever agent we want as long as we can achieve those goals and keep patients control on a pretty tight frame. The one interesting thing that I do like to point out in the variability studies though, is the way that they looked at this was they were looking at the study data and exactly when they measured the blood pressures and the findings of variability leading to worse functional outcomes was based on 17 blood pressure measurements. So it was the first six hours after enrollment and then essentially twice daily for the first seven days. Like that's it. That, that is the sum of all the data that was evaluated to kind of find this measurement. So it is kind of interesting that we think about, you know, somebody has, has an art line placed, we're getting a blood pressure every second. Uh, it's not exactly one-to-one with just looking at it once an hour. But in any case, what was found in some of these studies is that essentially every 10 millimeter of mercury increase in the variability of systolic blood pressure, the likelihood of a good functional outcome or the odds of a good functional outcome decreased by about 20%. So it's like a pretty large effect size of patients do worse when they have these big swings of blood pressure. Whether or not that's minute to minute or hour to hour, it's kind of yet to be said. But uh, in any case, we can improve the rates of functional outcomes by kind of keeping patients in a range, in a pretty tight range. So we know in a lot of these agents that 
we'll talk about some of their um, pharmacokinetic considerations and some of them you think would be positives and some of it you think would be negatives and we're using it in these disease states. So should we go based off of these pharmacokinetic assumptions is the wrong word, but assumed benefits or assumed harms or go off of observational data showing agents having, you know, improved time to control, variability, et cetera. Like which knowing there's limitations to both, do we, is there one that we should try to use um, or like base our decisions off of more? Yeah. Right. I think it's like the most frustrating thing about the data is there's not a good answer about, but I think that ultimately what it really comes down to is using an agent that, you know, the team is comfortable with dosing correctly and titrating optimally to achieve our goals. So I think in terms of how we as pharmacists recommend agents, the agents that you should recommend are really the ones that, yeah, the pharmacokinetics are favorable in the disease, right? So you wouldn't want to start amlodipine for somebody who comes in with an ICH, right? We know it's going to take a couple of days to kick in. Uh, but it's probably not best to be like, I think that we should use enalapilat to control this patient. And your nurse looks at you and like, I've never even heard of that drug, right? So uh, basically, whatever agent within the kind of group of agents we're going to talk about soon, whose pharmacokinetics are favorable to achieve your goal uh, and have at least some modicum of evidence of being able to maintain variability within a short kind of tight frame, uh, and that your teams, your nurses, your providers are all comfortable with, that's probably the best agent to go with avoiding some of the potentially harmful ones that we'll talk about in a moment. But like really, there's just not enough data to say like one way or the other, any agent you choose is better or worse, as long as you're choosing one that you're comfortable with, you know will achieve your goals, and doesn't cause abject harm to the patients you're treating. Yeah, you want to avoid that nurse stink eye, right? When you recommend something <laughs> that they either don't like or don't know, and they're like, hmm, what was that? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so let's start with our IV push agents. And um, the the two right, that we're going to talk about, right, labetalol and hydralazine, I don't think that's a surprise to anybody. But what I think would be helpful, Andy, is talk about how we dose these in neurologic emergencies and how that differs from like your standard like med surge admission order set and how, you know, it, talk about how that dosing is probably different in some of these scenarios. Yeah, yeah. So I think labetalol is probably the go-to for most people. It's just like comfortable, familiar. We know how it works. But to your point, I think it can be dosed a little bit more aggressively than some people might recognize. Uh, and so labetalol is fantastic because, it's, you know, it doesn't have any, have any really unexpected effects. It's relatively reliable. It has a great dose response curve. And in particular, it can be dosed pretty frequently and pretty aggressively. And so I think it's really great to look at how the trial protocols actually recommended these agents to be used as a guide and really some support of some of the aggressive dosing that you can get away with. And so essentially with labetalol in particular, uh, the Interact 3 protocol is a great kind of spelling out of how this should be recommended with really starting with 10 milligrams IV once, getting a blood pressure in five minutes. And if you're not at your goal, give another 10 milligrams and essentially every five mil minutes, essentially double the dose. So you go from 10 another 10, then you can give 20, then five minutes later, you can give 40, usually 40 milligrams in a single dose is going to be the maximum individual bolus. And they recommend giving up to 300 milligrams uh, in a 24-hour period of IV bolus dosing. And so what that really means is that labetalol can be pretty aggressively uptitrated in the ED or wherever you are where you're giving IV boluses. And within 30 minutes, you could have given like a really good dose of labetalol to potentially get somebody under control and potentially avoid them needing a continuous infusion if they're otherwise stable. 
and, and Hydral is the same way where it's not necessarily my first choice, like we'll talk about in a moment, but really is a reasonable option, at least with the data that we have available. And the, the challenge with Hydral, as we all know, is it's just like rolling a dice. Like my, you know, you roll a dice, then whatever number you get, multiply that by five, and that's probably the number that your patient's blood pressure is going to go down by because it's just very individual, the, like kind of the effect that Hydral is going to have. But it is a reasonable option, especially if somebody has baseline bradycardia, they may have a contraindication to a beta blocker otherwise. And similarly, you know, we're comfortable with it, and you can also dose this relatively aggressively. So Interact3 recommends starting with five milligrams once, you know, repeating that if they're not under control, and then again every five minutes, increasing the dose from 10 to 20 uh, to a maximum of 240 milligrams is the maximum cumulative dose. So Hydral is another potential option that has limitations that we'll talk about, uh, but that can be dosed pretty aggressively in that acute phase to get somebody under control. All right, Andy, everyone's thinking it, so I just have to say it. Are we even allowed to talk about hydralazine in a neuro talk? Do I need a disclaimer at the beginning of the episode? <laughs> like if there's flashing lights for people at se- at risk of seizures, do I need that for those who treat <laughs> neuro patients? We talk about hydralazine at minute. Da, 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 da. <laughs> yeah, you know, this comes up all the time. And, uh, you know, my response is usually like hydralazine is the most dangerous if you are a cat in a physiology lab in the 1970s, right? So there is good reason to suspect, at least theoretically, that hydralazine can increase intracranial pressure and may be detrimental in patients with neurologic illness, right? So I think there, this has been documented at least a handful of times, mostly in the 70s and 80s, of pretty well-described patient cases of somebody who gets a dose of IV hydralazine and their intracranial pressure goes up. So there's a nice little case series from 1975 that plots this out where they give six patients, they all got doses of IV hydral between you know, basically 12 and 20 milligrams, uh, and their intracranial pressure went up by about 100%, like a doubling in their intracranial pressure, which is scary. We like to avoid that, right? But interestingly, they were also able to simultaneously measure cerebral blood flow, and what they essentially found is that the cerebral blood flow didn't substantially change from patient to patient before and after the administration of hydral. So it's a little unclear as to whether or not that increase in intracranial pressure is abjectly harmful per se. And that exact finding of increases of intracranial pressure have been also reported in similar, relatively small case series in neurocritically ill and neurosurgical patients, as well as very well documented in cats. (laughs) There's a really great study in cats that I've looked at this. And one of the things that's important in the cat study is that it was not seen in all cats. So basically, it's a little bit variable as to who ultimately will see that change in intracranial pressure. And what that means is that Broadly speaking, hydralazine is not necessarily strictly contraindicated. There's just usually a better option. So by and large, you can usually use an agent which is a little bit more consistent, a little bit less variable, a little bit less risky in terms of the intracranial pressure. But there are a couple of patients which I will feel kind of strongly about avoiding it in, particularly in patients who have, you know, really large bleeds or have like, you know, this infratentorial cerebellar bleeds where if that bleed just gets a little bit bigger, if the edema around the bleed gets a little bit bigger, it might press on, press on the brainstem just enough to cause a lot of kind of concern and potentially even herniation. But the data isn't like super strict that like thou shalt not use hydralazine, especially when you look at the big ICH trials, like a lot of the patients got hydral. And it gets to, we don't know whether or not the agents may have been a modifying uh, kind of confounder in the effect size, but you can use it, but just be very intentional on who you choose it on and try to use something better if you can. 
it almost feels like you just broke the neurocritical care 10th commandment. Thou <laughs> shalt not uh, compliment hydralazine. <laughs> I'm going to be hunted down by my colleagues. <laughs> so when we're using these agents and for the listeners, there's going to be no randomized data or anything to support this, but when do you decide to reach for the IV push? And when are you just like, no, let's just go straight for the infusion, right? Cause when you're doing this a lot of times, and, and let's take out the effect of like the continuous infusion has to go to the ICU. Let's kind of take the bedside out of it and think just about the, the patient and that kind of like administration kind of technique characteristics, et cetera. Yeah. And so I don't think there's like a, a you know, one size fits all answer to this question. I think honestly, this most straightforward question gets to disposition, right? So if you have a patient who mm-hmm. has a really big bleed, you know, they're going to the ICU no matter what, like a continuous infusion is just easier to start. You know that you're going to be able to you know, get the blood pressure under control reliably, keep it in a tight range. And there's no question about that affecting where the patient is ultimately going to end up going. I think the patients who usually you should reach for a push first are the relatively stable, smaller bleeds. Their blood pressures are elevated, but they're not through the roof. You know, somebody who comes in with a blood pressure of like 170, 175, can usually get under control with just pushes. And if it's a relatively small bleed, they're otherwise stable, then they can go to the floor, kind of go to the stroke unit and get managed from there. But either the, the, the big bleeds, particularly elevated blood pressures, like over 200, over 220, those are the ones where you just should just start the drip. You should get something going that you know is going to work quickly. You know you can titrate effectively. And you're going to be able to get to your goal within that one-hour window that should be titrated in the, or kind of targeted in the, in the trials. Those are the patients where I, my, my thought process generally just go straight for the infusion. But the smaller, stable patients, not super hypertensive, a lot of times they can get under control with IV push alone. So your favorite continuous IV agent is what? And as you're kind of talking about these, maybe say why, why are your, why are the other agents not your favorite? Yeah. So, I mean, I think that I, I am still a nicardipine fan where it's to the kind of reasons that I talked about before. Nicardipine is kind of our old standard. It's familiar. We know how it works. We know how to titrate it. It can get to our goals pretty reliably. It's not perfect by any means, but for the majority of patients, it's going to achieve our goals in a reliable and rapid fashion. It can be easily titrated up and down in a relatively, you know, in in a nursing friendly way, you know, every 15 to 30 minutes uh, and usually doesn't have a ton of variability. Now, there are a couple of limitations with nicardipine. You know, it's hepatically metabolized. You may see a tail effect in some patients. Uh, it does, it's not able to be titrated like hyper rapidly like clavidipine can be, uh, and it has, can be a ton of volume if patients are, say, on 50 milligrams an hour for days and days. And so while it's definitely not perfect in everyone, by and large, nicardipine is kind of like just that old familiar drug that we're all very comfortable starting. Now, that being said, I am also a clavidipine fan, and I'm lucky enough to be at a center that has both available. And I do think that clavidipine has some pretty like important niche kind of areas of therapy. Um, now, I think broadly speaking at the population level, when you look at some of the observational data that you had suggested, there isn't really any data that suggests that clavidipine is like definitively better or worse than NICARD overall. You look at the observational data, like there's a great paper out of um, Memorial Hermann Texas Medical Center, where patients who are started on nicardipine or clavidipine tended to achieve their goals at a relatively similar period of time. They tended to stay in range a relatively similar period of time, and blood pressure variability was not substantially different. That being said, when clavidipine is really used to its maximum potential, 
it does have some really great advantages. I think the main one being is just how fast it works, right? So if you've ever been bedside when you start a clavidipine infusion, it can be quite speedy. And that's great, right? Where you start clavidipine at one, and then, you know, if you look at the interaction uh, protocol, you can double the dose every 60 seconds, right? And so the Accelerate trial, which is one of the kind of single arm trials that looked at uh, clavidipine and achieving blood pressure goals in ICH patients, you could achieve your blood pressure goal in like eight to 10 minutes, like super fast. The issue, though, is that requires somebody being at the bedside, hands on the pump, every 60 seconds, pressing the button, which is usually just not super feasible when all the other things are going on. Uh, and so I think clavidipine is great if you have the manpower available to really closely titrate it, as well as, at least in my anecdotal experience, if somebody is having a hard time achieving their goal on maximally dosed nicardipine, I have had success getting somebody down to 140 by switching to clavidipine. And then it has some of the other additional benefits of like less volume uh, and those sorts of things, which can potentially be beneficial and obviously has the potential to have less variability because you can go up and down really closely. You know, I've, I've had it happen a handful of times where somebody's on nicardipine, they titrate a little bit too quick and they overshoot and they have to turn off the nicardipine and then they go too low and then norepi starts and it's just back and forth and clavidipine can kind of solve that issue. And those are, those to me are the two those are the two workhorses of in terms of continuous infusions for me. And I also think, yep. you know, you mentioned the titration and how that's a benefit. I also think for, for when it's not used as much, I think the titration can also be confusing if you're not at the bedside helping the nurses because it's, we don't, we don't titrate other antihypertensives like that, right? Doubling. We don't necessarily even do that with, with vasopressors, right? So um, I thought that was important points. Now, what about our, I feel like the other two agents that we'd be remiss to not mention would be our other nitrates, right? Which would be specifically sodium nitroprusside and nitroglycerin. So um, talk us through what you think their role is for treating blood pressure in these emergencies. Yeah, so I'll say sodium nitroprusside has no role in my ICU, right? <laughs> so where hydral, I'll be okay with, I'll, I'll settle for it as kind of like something we have to use in certain scenarios. I think that the data for nitroprusside, while, you know, not necessarily phenomenal like anything else, uh, this is really the one where there's at least a signal of harm. And so, you know, sodium nitroprusside, like hydralazine to a certain extent, but probably to a larger degree as nitroprusside, as a venodilator, um, has pretty reliably been shown in physiology data to have like proportional increases in intracranial pressure as you go up on the dose and have decreases in blood pressure. So there's like a great paper from 1978 that looked at, you know, the percent change in blood pressure was essentially a linear correlation with how much your intracranial pressure went up. And so that's like the major concern. Like nitroprusside, obviously fantastic in the cardiac population of getting your blood pressure under control. But there's a really nice study uh, from 2009 that looked at like a big registry of kind of overall hospitalizations and looked at patients who got nicardipine as their primary antihypertensive of choice after an ICH versus nitroprusside as their primary antihypertensive of choice. And while there are plenty of limitations to these large kind of registry-based claims databases, uh, what they found after adjustment for age, the severity of the bleed, uh, as well as the hospital that they were at, and some of the characteristics of the treating center, was that the odds ratio for mortality with nitroprusside was 1.6, which is a significant finding. And so there may be, even after the best adjustment that they can do, an increased risk of death when patients use nitroprusside. Now, is the effect size truly that large? Are there other things at play? You know, the patients who got nicardipine tended to be at larger urban academic centers, probably as a larger contributor to better outcomes overall. But in, in my opinion, at least both theoretically, 
as well as what data is out there. Nitroprusside is really just not an ideal option for really any neurologic pathology. And that also largely applies to nitroglycerin, right? So there's a little bit less data in nitroglycerin in this patient population. But the way I think about it is very similar. It's just not super familiar to neurologic clinicians or neurology clinicians and probably has the same concern about increasing intracranial pressure. Yeah, like like if this was our only antihypertensive agent, yeah, we would we would pick through that study and show all the limitations. But if we have all of these other options, right, which we literally talked about four before we talked about it, it's like, why would we even risk that harm signal when we already know trying to improve outcomes is so hard in these patients? We don't need to, you know, let's help ourselves, right? Let's not, we got to step number one. Um, yeah, and I think that like, that's one of the other crazy things about Interact 3 is that 20% yeah. of the patients got nitroprusside. And so and I think that, you know, I, I, It'll be really interesting, and hopefully there's uh, some post-hoc analyses looking at medication-level effects, and it'd be really interesting to see how the patients who got nitroprusside did. Andy, I got an over-under of about 15 post-hoc studies coming from oh, Interact yeah. 3. I think that we're going to have no shortage of, we're going to have country-level analysis, patient-level, oh, yeah. drug-level, all of the things. Um, so especially for um, our colleagues in the emergency department. I think it's very easy for us, like you said, the advantages of a continuous infusion, kind of set and forgets, the not, not the right word, but in a sense, you're not having to go to the pixies and get things every time you need something, right? But let's kind of flip it a little bit. And what's an argument against it? What would be a disadvantage of, of just using continuous infusions as your standard in these patients? Yeah, so kind of like what we talked about, you know, unfortunately, continuous infusions are a one-way ticket to the ICU. So there are a good chunk of ICH patients who really don't require ICU-level care. And just strictly from a resource utilization perspective, like using a continuous infusion to get somebody's blood pressure from 160 to 140 is probably not necessary most of the time. And so like we've talked about, appropriate dosing and good titration of IV push agents really can get you to your goal in a feasible amount of time in the emergency department. You get them to their goal, you restart or start uh, oral antihypertensives, and sometimes that's really all you need to keep their blood pressure at goal. They can have a nice, comfortable stay in a stroke unit without all the beeps and bloops of the ICU and probably have better sleep and outcomes because of that as well. Uh, and obviously there are some kind of potential adverse effects of continuous infusions as well that are important to just kind of stay cognizant of. You know, things like nicardipine can be irritating on the veins, so the recommendation is, you know, Central line would be preferential, generally speaking, but if you peripherals are fine as long as you kind of alternate them, that can also be kind of challenging. And then one thing that I looked at in my blog is kind of pulmonary shunting with calcium channel blockers, right? And so kind of like a rare event, but something to kind of be aware of as well when you're kind of hooking somebody up to an infusion. That is a veteran lead-in. As a, as a transition in, because that's exactly right, right? The um, NeuroWise, your first post was about pulmonary shunting with calcium channel blockers. So um, as you're going through what you found, tell us how this website came to be. What can the listeners expect to hear? Kind of tell us a little bit about this. Um, I, it is a blog, but it feels more than a blog for the record. Like it is very, the insight is awesome. So I almost feel like it's, I, I'm going to call it a website to make sure it gets the respect that it deserves here. So talk to us a little bit about NeuroWise and the shunting question. 
Yeah, yeah. So I started NeuroWiseRx.com because I think that there's a lot of these questions where there's not a good answer that, you know, as the pharmacist on the unit, I get asked all the time or something's going wrong with the patient and they're like, it's the drugs, isn't it? <laughs> so, uh, you know, I really wanted for some of these kind of nuanced questions to be able to have a good answer for my my teams and my, my uh, you know, the clinicians taking care of these patients. And pulmonary shunting is something that comes up all the time where somebody has newly found hypoxia. We kind of do the standard things. They don't have a pneumonia. They don't have a PE, all these sorts of things. And we realize, oh, they're on micardipine. So I get to ask the question, like, could it be the micardipine, right? Is the patient shunting from the calcium channel blocker? Uh, and essentially, I was kind of tired of having like a semi-answer of like, well, theoretically, maybe we could do this. And I really wanted to know, is there a physiologic basis for this? Is there an evidentiary basis for this? Really, what's out there for me to be able to kind of supply my teams with a good answer? And that was essentially that question, as well as many questions that I have lined up that I'm doing the deep dives on, are the, my, the impetus for me to be able to kind of catalog a good, solid, evidence-based answer to questions that are a little bit murky, to at least both have my opinion, as well as share what's out there so people can kind of make their own deformed opinions as well. And so essentially, calcium channel blocker shunting is definitely theoretically possible. So, you know, starting with the physiologic basis, uh, calcium channel blockers can kind of non-selectively cause pulmonary vasodilation. And so in patients who have non-ventilated lung units, you know, normal hypoxic vasoconstriction can be antagonized by calcium channel blockers. Then you have blood that's flowing through these non-ventilated lung units are not kind of getting oxygen. You can have drops in oxygen levels because of that. Now, broadly speaking, it's usually not that big of a deal. Like this happens essentially in everybody who has a calcium channel blocker and the amount of pulmonary vasodilation is just not significant enough to cause an issue most of the time. But in patients who have otherwise or underlying pulmonary pathology, be that atelectasis, you know, brewing pneumonia, something along those lines that might make their lung a little bit vulnerable to kind of additional pulmonary vasodilation. Those are the patients where you may get drops in kind of oxygenation due to the calcium channel blocker. And interestingly, I found a whopping six case reports. That's it. Of all the decades of use of calcium channel blockers, six have been published actually documenting this definitively. Interestingly, three of them were with nemotipine. So the agent we use for kind of oh. subarachnoid hemorrhage. And so they are like very clearly documenting that like repetitive, like every four hour episodes of hypoxia. And they're like, wait a second. That's exactly when we're giving the nemotipine. Uh, and either reducing the dose or withholding the dose essentially solves the problem. But there are also two with nicardipine and one with clavidipine where the same thing happened, where they essentially did the broad workup of everything that could possibly cause hypoxia. They, and I think one of the ones was really satisfying where they're like, and we consulted the critical care pharmacist and the pharmacist suggested maybe it's the nicardipine. And, you know, they turned Let's off the go. nicardipine. Lo and behold, the hypoxia improved, right? So that's, kind of one of those great examples of how we can understand as pharmacists how the medications influence the pathology, the pathophysiology, and ended up having a good outcome for the patient. But yeah, super interesting. And I was happy that I finally like got my answer and I can have something to point to when I get asked it again. <laughs> That's like the master level of a shout out. So there's nothing greater than when you, you get the shout out in the note or whatever, but man, getting a shout out in the publication is, is oh, next yeah. level. I love that. And you know, we have to say for the record, when everyone approaches you and says it's the drug, they're definitely talking about cefepime in the neuro ICU, right? <laughs> it's always the cefepime. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. That, you look at the EEG. Look, it's like, ah, it's always the cefepime, right? 
So yeah, there's that. And there's so many other things. But like maybe we should consider other causes as well before jumping to the medication. Um, but everyone should check it out. NeuroWiseRx.com. There'll be a link to that in the episode um, description as well as the website. So definitely go check that out. Now, when we're talking about um, IV antihypertensives, what are some operational considerations to keep in mind? Um, to because I think you know you had mentioned timely um, administration and getting to our blood pressure goals important. So what are what are operational considerations to try to help us, right? Be our best friend and make lives easier for everybody to make that happen. Yeah. And I, and I think, again, this really gets down to what's familiar and what's available. So, you know, in the ED, a lot of the times, it's, you know, the labetalol and the hydral are the things that are right there. They're in the pictus, they're easy, you know, the dose, they're available. Uh, and it really just depends on what your institution and what your center stocks and makes about what's the fastest and most convenient thing to get going for your patient. So, you know, I think a lot of centers still do like IV compounding of NICAR bags, and that could be a potential limitation of getting a bag up to the floor in a timely fashion to get going. But luckily, both nicardipine and clozidipine do come in premixes. So if your center kind of stocks those agents and has those available in your automatic dispensing cabinets, uh, that's definitely whatever is fastest and easiest to get is probably going to be the preferred agent. Interestingly, at our center, we don't stock the premixes. We actually stock the vials. And the vials are in the Omnicell, and those get snapped together in a mini bag plus kind of complex. And so that's how uh, we compound it here to kind of both have cost savings. So we're not buying the brand uh, premixed bags, but also have it readily available in the Omnicell. But we also have clozidipine in our Omnicell as well, which is obviously easy. So I think really knowing how your institution supplies the agents that are available, where they're physically stocked, how quickly you can get them. You know, if your particular dispensing cabinet doesn't have hydral for whatever reason, it's probably not great waiting for that to get tubed or waiting for that to get brought up to the floor if you have somebody whose blood pressures are hanging out in the 180s, 190s after a bleed. Yeah, and that's a really important point for um, our night shift colleagues and our colleagues maybe at smaller hospitals, right, where you're just, those are scenarios where you're just going to have a little less resources. So that's exactly right. If you know you have to, that nicardipine has to get made in the hood, maybe you're giving a little something IV push as you're waiting for that to happen, right? So figuring out those operational considerations is an important piece when you're thinking about, in my opinion, the treatment and getting our blood pressure goals uh, in these patients. So- Let's kind of wrap up here. And I want to wrap up with two questions. The first one being, as we think about our neurologic emergencies, um, and we'll we'll generalize the patients that we've talked about. And of course, that's probably the worst thing I can do here. But is higher or lower worse in neurologic emergencies? And we'll we'll define higher as greater than 180 and lower as less than 130. So do we know if if we have to to prevent one if there's a higher priority? And it's like, it's worse for me to say it depends, right? <laughs> but I think, I think broadly speaking, lower is probably worse most of the time. Uh, and I think the reason for that, if you think about cerebral autoregulation uh, and in these neurologic illnesses where cerebral blood flow is going to be dependent, like fully dependent on uh, kind of systemic pressures, really low blood pressures, I would say maybe less than 100 are generally speaking going to be worse for the brain. Because while really high blood pressures put patients at risk of, say, worsening edema or hemorrhagic transformation or potential worsening hematoma expansion, not getting enough oxygen at all 
is probably going to be ultimately worse. Where if the, the, the brain is not able to extract oxygen from like the delivery of oxygen of the blood, that's going to directly cause ischemia and really critically injured brains. And so broadly speaking, I would say hypotension is probably worse. But obviously, every single patient is going to be unique. And so the goals that you said are going to have to depend on the underlying pathophysiology. Well, and this has just been um, between talking about the individual agents and the um, disease states themselves. Uh, you have given us so many pearls, tips and tricks. But if we were to kind of summarize, what would you say are the three kind of biggest take home points, kind of the high level bullets um, that are some of the important things when we're thinking about blood pressure control in neurologic emergencies. Yeah. So I think that the first one is kind of the reason we talk so much about blood pressure is because blood pressure is a surrogate for flow and flow is how your brain gets oxygen. So if there's not oxygen getting to your brain kind of game over. And so any of the goals that we set really have to balance providing adequate oxygen delivery while still limiting secondary harm from letting blood pressures either get too high or too low. And then secondarily, I think for acute ischemic strokes, broadly speaking, higher is probably better than lower. You know, there are going to be specific instances where you want your BB to be lower, whether there's, you know, after TPA administration or after hemorrhagic conversion. But by and large, let the brain get the perfusion that it wants by allowing autoregulation to essentially dictate what the flow for the brain is required, at least in that hyperacute phase, the first 24 to 72 hours before you start kind of lowering patients to guideline recommended hypertension thresholds. But for ICH and hemorrhagic stroke, it's essentially the opposite. We know that hematoma expansion is probably the major driver of worse functional outcomes. And the Interact 3 trial, in the context of all the other trials that we have, really show us that lower blood pressure, probably around 140 for most patients, is going to be the kind of major knob that we have to play with to improve outcomes. Now, the magnitude of the effect size in terms of how much blood pressure lowering improved functional outcomes is still to be debated, but that target of 140 in the context of a larger bundle of care is still our kind of best bet at improving the functional outcomes of our ICH patients. Well, Andy, uh, master class. This was unbelievable. Um, again, everyone follow him on Twitter at AJW Farm. And remember um, his awesome website, diving in to those questions that have no answers in neurocritical care, neurowiserx.com. Uh, Andy, thank you so much for time, energy, expertise. We, we all learned a lot um, and very thankful for you. Yeah, thanks so much again for the invitation, Nick. It was a real pleasure talking about this topic. And another huge thank you to Andy. Uh, he's on Twitter, uh, at AJW Farm. And uh, visit his website, NeuroWiseRx.com. Uh, thanks again, Andy. Uh, and reach out to me, uh, social media, at pharmacy to dose uh, via email, pharmacy to dose at gmail.com or our website, of course, pharmacy to dose.com. Uh, the reference list with the articles that were discussed and more is featured in that podcast episode description, description as well as at pharmacy to dose.com. And until next time, I'm Nick Peters, and this is pharmacy to dose, the critical care podcast. QXMD builds mobile solutions that drive evidence-based care in clinical practice. So check out Read for easy access to research personalized for you. Calculate for over 500 easy-to-use decision support tools and learn to earn CME online in minutes per day. 
Try them today at qxmd.com slash apps. Again, that is qxmd.com slash A-P-P-S. The Critical Care PRN optimizes drug therapy outcomes by promoting excellence and innovation in clinical pharmacy practice, research, and education. For more information, go to critprn.accp.com. Again, that is critprn.accp.com. The podcast provides general information only does not offer individualized medical or professional healthcare services, including pharmaceutical advice. The contents and materials in the podcast are not intended to be a substitute for inpatient pharmaceutical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Use of the contents and materials in the podcast does not constitute a pharmacist-patient relationship. As a result, the information in and materials linked to this podcast are applied at the user or patient's own risk. Users and patients should consult their physician or personal healthcare professional. Users or patients should not ignore or delay seeking care because of something they heard on this podcast. In case of an emergency, the user or patient should contact their physician, call 911, or go to the nearest medical emergency facility. The views and statements expressed on this podcast are those of the host and guests should not be interpreted to reflect the official position or policy of ACCP or the critical care PRN. ACP and the critical care PRN disclaim any and all liability or responsibility for any direct, indirect, incidental, special, consequential, or any other damages, including without limitation, loss of profits arising out of any use of reference to, reliance on, or inability to use the podcast, its contents, and materials.